I sort of thought today uh, with everybody all being together and kiddos and babies all being here, um, I th- what I'm going to do today for the message is hopefully a little bit abbreviated. Um, and so rather than give you kind of a formal exposition, if you will, of this passage of Scripture, I kind of want to just uh, draw, make a few observations, kind of draw your attention to a few things that, uh, that show up in this passage. So we are in John 10. We're continuing uh, there in John chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn there or pull it up on your phone and scroll to it or whatever you want to do. And that's where we're going to be. So we have been following Jesus on this journey um, in Jerusalem where he had this debate uh, with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, after he healed a blind man. Uh, he had this debate about who he was and what power by which he did this miracle. And uh, he went on this kind of extended metaphor about himself as a shepherd of his people. And so the people of Israel at that time, the people of God, uh, are, are the, the flock of God. And Jesus is the one who's come to lead them and to guide them and to protect them. And he really accuses them of failing in that task. Uh, and leading them astray with false teachings and burdens that they were never intended to bear. And, uh, and so they don't really like hearing that, of course. And so that, that led us through most of chapter 10. And then there was a division among them, and some said, he's crazy, he's demon-possessed. And others said, well, but he is healing blind people. And, like, I don't think demons do that. So there's some who believe and some who don't, as is always the case. And then last week we looked at, uh, he's back in Jerusalem during the time of the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. Uh, and so he kind of picks up that metaphor again of, uh, of sheep and shepherds. Uh, and the, the big point that he drove home last week was that the people of God, the sheep of God, are secure in his hand forever. He says, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. I call them and they come to me and they know me and then no one can take them out of my hand. And my father, who's greater than all, uh, no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So the sheep of God, the people of God, are in the Lord's hand, and they're in the Father's hand, even outside and underneath that. So uh, we talked about the, the security, the, the work of God, the sovereign work of God in the heart of a sinner who becomes a believer. Uh, and then because of that sovereign work, the, the secure keeping power of Christ and the Father in the life of a believer. And so now we're just going to finish out this chapter and this scene. Uh, and so I'll read for you and then uh, I'll draw out a few observations. So I'm reading from uh, chapter 10, verse 31, down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 42. All right. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him because he had just declared that I and the Father are one. <laughs> The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. 
But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So a few things that I want to point out or or observations to draw out from this text. The first is Jesus' emphasis on the works of the Father. And again, John has been writing throughout this gospel of these signs, these miracles that Jesus is performing, the point of which is to authenticate and to point to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Son of God, right? And so Jesus himself speaks now of of the works that he's been doing, and he doesn't just say, my works, the things I've been doing. He says, the works of the Father. I have shown you many good works from the Father. And then he gets kind of a little bit gently sarcastic. So for which one of these are you going to stone me? Right? So point out to me which miracle, which act of kindness, which miraculous act of power you're stoning me for. Because they've picked up stones now to hurl at him. But the, what I want to point out there is that Jesus, again, as he's been doing throughout John's gospel, is, is seeing himself as so in union with God the Father that the things that he does are the Father's works. Just before he healed the blind man in John 9, he said, I must be about the works of him who sent me. And then he healed this man's blindness. And he said that all throughout. And so the, the acts of Jesus, the works of Jesus, are the works of the Father. That point is not lost on his audience because they have picked up stones to throw at him for claiming that very thing. Because he had said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And so the Jews had picked up stones to stone him. So they recognize that Jesus is not just saying, God and I have a good relationship, or I come in the name of or to honor God the Father. He is saying there is a unique and integral connection and identity and being with God the Father. And so they don't like that. Which leads to the second observation. The charge uh, against the Jews to Jesus is that you make yourself out to be God. It's basically, they say, we're not stoning you because of one of these works. We're stoning you because of the claims you're making. It's not your acts. It's not your healings and things like that. It's what you're saying. It's the claim that you are making to be one with the Father. Because the way that they interpreted what Jesus was saying, and I think they rightly interpreted it, was that Jesus was claiming deity for himself. Jesus was claiming to be God. Now, of course, the way that they say that is not a faithful confession. It's not, Jesus, you are God, and you're claiming to be God. It's you make yourself out to be somebody that you're not, is essentially what they're saying. You And essentially, their charge against Jesus is the exact opposite of the truth. They say to Jesus, you are a man making yourself out to be God. When the reality is, he's God who's made himself man for us and our salvation, as the, um, the confession goes. So they get it right, but not quite. They get the idea. He, they get his claim. Yeah, he's claiming union with God. He's claiming a, a, an essential oneness of being with God the Father. 
but they don't get that this is mercy towards sinners, that God has become man to redeem us. And that's what Christmas is all about. That's what Advent is all about. That's why we light candles and sing carols. It's because God has become man for us and our salvation. And they get that backwards. You're a man making yourself out to be God. The truth is he was God and he became man for us. Third thing I want to point out is the statement that Jesus makes about the scripture. It's sort of an incidental point to what he's saying, but he says in verse 35 that scripture cannot be broken. And what he's doing here when he says, the law says you are gods, is he is quoting from Psalm 82. So I'm going to pull that up. He's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. Psalm 82, 6 says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And so this is kind of the reference to the judges of Israel during that period and calling them gods in lower case, uh, denoting their authority, their power, maybe even the way they kind of set themselves up over God's people, but saying you're just mere people and you're going to die and you're going to lose your power and this is all going to change. Um, and so he, but he quotes that and says, if, if the Bible, if scripture, which can't be broken, says of mere mortals, mere people, that you're gods, lowercase gods, then why are you going to stone me for claiming to be the son of God? He's kind of arguing from the lesser to the greater. If it's okay for the scriptures to say of a mere man that you're a, quote, God, lowercase g, then how much more appropriate is it, how much more fitting would it be for the son of God himself to make this claim about himself? Right, so he's he's saying the things I am saying to you are true. I say that I'm from the Father. I say that I'm one with Him. I'm saying I'm the Son of God, and you're going to stone me for that, even though the Scriptures have made claims similar to that for lesser beings, just for people, just for men. Right? Um, but I but the the point that I wanted to draw out there, the observation I want to make there is that Jesus' assumption is that the Scripture can't be broken. Right? So he's not arguing against the Bible. He's using the Bible as a way to sort of strengthen his own argument for his own identity, right? So he says, the word of God came to you, and the word of God cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. And it said this about them being gods. So how much more appropriate is it then for me, the son of God, to make this claim about myself? And once again, what he does is draw out that union that he has with the Father. And so... The next observation is the strength of that connection between Jesus as the Son of God and the Father as two persons of the same being. We have this echo again of of the Trinity, God being three persons in one being, which it exists outside of our mind and ability to totally understand it. But, um, But it's clear and it's true, and this is what Jesus is saying. And so he says again, the point of these miracles... Uh, if you look at verse 38, uh, he, he's tell, he says, verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of, the, of my Father, then don't believe me. Right? You have no reason to believe what I'm saying if I'm just out here going, yep, yep, I'm God, I'm the Son of God, I'm, I and the Father are one, but I'm not doing anything to prove it. Right? So he's essentially saying that these works that he's been doing, these works from the Father, are intended to prove that he is who he says that he is. So his message is authenticated by his 
actions, by his works. And so he says, but if I do them, which of course he is doing them, he's been doing them, they've seen him doing them in a very public way. If I do them, then even though you don't believe me, like if you wouldn't be inclined to just take me at my word, you should believe on account of the works, right? Because uh, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And so, again, a restatement of the union of Jesus with God the Father and even kind of a heightening of it, an escalating of it. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. We are one and the same in being and in <coughs> essence. And so, once again, they don't like that. They uh, try to arrest him. Now, that uh, that claim, this, this union of Jesus with the Father, which is a theme throughout John's Gospel, we've seen it over and over from Jesus' own lips, is uh, distinct from the way a lot of people think about Jesus today. Even uh, groups uh, that would bear the name Christian, um, such as Jehovah's Witnesses. I had a couple of those come to my door uh, just a week or two ago. Um, and in the past, I've had fairly lengthy conversations with them. At this point, I didn't really engage them. But there have been times where I've had them come in and sit down and we'll talk about uh, about Jesus and their understanding of who he is. Um, and they would say, oh, yeah, Jesus is the son of God, just like, you know, we're all sons of God, right? We're all God's children um, by, by his grace. Well, Jesus is not the son of God in the same way that I'm a son of God, right? I'm a, I've been adopted as a son of God, right, because I trusted in him. And that's glorious and good news. But I'm not a son of God in the same way that Jesus is God's son, right? And so just just to walk, and that's kind of what I've done in the past with, with some of these JWs, is kind of walk them through some of these passages in John, where Jesus very clearly is, paints this picture of himself and the Father as being united in a very unique way. And away from before time began, like back in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so from before time began, he had this relationship with the Father. And even now in his earthly ministry, now in the Gospel of John, this is what he reiterates over and over. I and the Father are one. I am doing the works that the Father sent me to do. I only speak what the Father tells me. The Father and I are, uh, are united. I am the Father and the Father is in me. So that is in stark contrast to, uh, to, to many who would say, oh yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, we recognize Jesus as a special teacher or prophet or whatever, but they'll stop short of saying Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. And that's not enough. That's not far enough. And so we need to be, make sure as we're protecting the gospel and guarding as the church the truth of who Jesus is and what he came to do to save sinners, that we recognize we can't tamper with this. We've got to make sure that we see Jesus as uniquely divine, as uniquely the Son of God. So they try to arrest him again. I don't know why they went from trying to stone him to just arresting him. I don't know if they had a change of mind at some point. But anyway, now they've tried to arrest him. But once again, he escapes their hands, it says in verse 39. Because as we've seen multiple times throughout this gospel, it's not his time yet. When Jesus' moment comes, the appointed moment for him to go to the cross comes, then he will be taken into the custody of those who will kill him. But that time hasn't come yet. God's not ready for that to happen yet. And so 
uh, perhaps miraculously, Jesus escapes from the hands of these men who are trying to um, arrest him. Because remember, they've surrounded him. Uh, back in uh, verse 24 or so, the Jews gathered around him. That is like in a siege, like surrounding a city. The Jews surrounded him and said, tell us plainly who you are. So it wouldn't be that easy for somebody to escape this crowd of people surrounding you who is trying to arrest you unless he has some sort of divine trickery going on. All right. So just a, maybe a little bit of speculation there, but it seems that Jesus sort of miraculously escapes somehow. So his time in Jerusalem essentially is over until... He comes back to die. Look at verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing, and there he remained. So he's back to where the drama of John began. This is an interesting kind of full circle moment in the Gospel of John, because if you look back in chapter 1 of the Gospel, we have this prologue about the Word being God and the Word being made flesh and all this. And then in verse 19 of chapter 1, the Gospel of John's narrative begins with John the Baptist. In verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, I'm not the Christ, I'm just the prophet, etc. Alright? So, John is baptizing in the Jordan River. And that's how the, the Gospel of John starts. And now, at the end of Jesus, if you will, earthly ministry prior to his passion, prior to the cross and the resurrection, he's now back at the Jordan where John had been baptizing. Now, John is not there anymore. John, by this time, has himself been imprisoned and then beheaded and become a martyr for his uh, proclamation of Jesus. But Jesus has returned to the place where his public ministry really began, at his own baptism by John the Baptist, which I think is, is an interesting kind of poetic moment that Jesus decides to go back to where things kind of started. And he's across the Jordan where uh, John had been baptizing. Now, so check this out. So John's not there anymore. But many people come to him, and apparently many believe in him. Look at the last uh, couple of verses there. In verse 41, many came to him, and they said, John did no sign but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So John wasn't doing anything impressive, right? John himself, John the Baptist, hadn't had any miraculous signs accompanying his ministry or anything like that. He was just preaching repentance, telling people uh, that the Christ was coming, and baptizing people for repentance of sins, right? And um, then... When Jesus came to John, in chapter 1, verse 29, John said, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when the people say everything that John said about this man is true, I think in John, the author's mind, that is a reference to the testimony that summary of John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who will be the sacrifice for sins that God will accept as payment for their 
wickedness and for their rebellion. And so when John, the author of this gospel, tells us, uh, or excuse me, when, when the people are saying everything that John said about this man, about Jesus, was true, it's an affirmation of that testimony that really started this gospel. Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And aside from one uh, big scene that's going to take place in chapter 11 and take up the entirety of chapter 11, this really is the, the kind of last public ministry uh, and speech, if you will, of Jesus before he goes to the cross to do exactly that, to take away the sin of the world and become that lamb, become that sacrifice. And so there's a, there's kind of a, a very um, a tidy kind of wrapping up, if you will, of this portion of the narrative, really looking at Jesus' life and miracles and teachings and the debates with the religious leaders and all of that. And now we've come full circle back to the Jordan where he was baptized and he began his ministry and where John made this declaration. He's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And so then when we pick up in chapter 12, we will we will look at chapter 11. But if you see that as kind of a parenthesis, chapter 12 picks up with him entering Jerusalem for the last time before he, uh, or when he will go to the cross. And so John has really set up this story in a, in a very complete way and kind of wrapped it up here. And then what's going to happen in chapters 13 through 21 are really it's the passion narrative. It's Jesus going to, it's it's the time with his disciples on the night of his arrest uh, and kind of a lengthy prayer. And then it's Jesus going to the cross and the events that unfold there and then the resurrection and then it's over, right? So his whole earthly ministry up until the passion has kind of been summarized with this statement of faith from not the religious leaders of the Jews, not the ones who were responsible for leading the worship of God, and for teaching the word of God, but the crowds, the commoners, if you will, who came to him and said, everything that John said about this man is true. And so the people are more ready to receive Jesus than the leaders are, than the most sort of religiously um, trained and capable, you know, uh, and versed are. And I think there's a caution for us in that because we can get um, so steeped in Christian teaching and language and the gospel can become so like just old to us. Such just, It's just common. We've heard it so many times. We've said it so many times. We've read the story so many times that it, it loses its luster to us. It loses its interest um, and almost becomes unimportant or at least secondary right and I think we need to be careful as those who have been entrusted with the gospel um, not just to believe it for ourselves but to carry it to the world the people that need to hear it and need to know it we need to be careful not to lose our sense of wonder at what God has done uh, because what God has done for us in Jesus is incredible it is, he has come so far. If you read uh, Philippians 2, that talks about the emptying of himself that Jesus uh, endured to become one of us. 
and to enter a womb and to then to be an infant, totally helpless. Um, those are the kind of images that like around this time of year when we get to Christmas time, the, the, the images of, it's not like Christmas is the only time you can talk about the incarnation or about Jesus being God and man. Obviously, that's, that's central to what we believe all the time. But when we're thinking about Jesus, that, that period of time when Jesus came into the world for the first time, when Jesus took on human flesh for the first time, it boggles the mind at how much Jesus had to lower himself to do that. And, and his journey as God and man wasn't just for the 33 or 35 or so years that he was on the earth. He's still God and man. And he's going to be that way forever. So he made an eternal decision about his being and his identity to be fully God and to take on full humanity to himself. And so in the events that we read about in you know Luke 2, for, for instance, where Mary finds a stable and gives birth to him and wraps him in a cloth and lays him in a manger and all. We need to not, we need to pause. We need to make sure that we give ourselves room to, to just think on that and to feel that. And like Mary herself, to, to ponder these things in her heart. She said, the, Luke tells us that she, all the, the shepherds coming and all of these things and the angels singing and all the stuff that surrounded the coming of Christ. She pondered those things. And I think there's a sense in which we need to make sure that we are willing uh, and taking time to ponder these things in our hearts. And I think Christmas provides us a good opportunity to do that. Um, it's not unique uh, in, in that it's not the only time of the year that we can think about Jesus coming for us. And we need to be proclaiming that good news all the time and living in the light of it. But it provides us a really good natural opportunity to pause and ponder uh, and reflect on what God has done for us by sending Jesus to us.